This podcast deals with sensitive topics and uses explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. In our previous episode, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, author of Halachic Positions, What Judaism Really Says About Passion in the Marital Bed, explained that the vast majority of Rishonim were permissive when it came to interpreting the major Talmudic texts dealing with sexuality. This begs the question, then, of why the Mechaber of the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, ruled stringently. That's the topic we discussed in part two of my interview with Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. So in that case... Why did, to the best of your knowledge, Rav Yosef Karo adopt such a stringent position, especially if the Rambam himself presented a lenient position? As we know, Rav Yosef Karo was a big follower of the Rambam in many situations, though not all, obviously. Why did that become his position? And then I'll follow it up by saying, and once that was his position, why did that become the dominant position if, as you're saying, he's very machmir and that's not necessarily the typical approach of most postgame at that time? In order to really answer this question, if I can take a few minutes just to give a little background to the listeners... Before I do that, I do want to just put it out there that we're using very uh, clear and direct language, you know, explicit but not provocative terminology, and I address that in the book as well. And that's actually based on a premise that the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, talks about in one of his addresses, that when it comes to halacha, even when it appears to seem impure or unclean, one needs to speak directly and clearly to avoid any confusion. If I may be so bold, I've applied that principle to my book and also in this discussion. So just to avoid any confusion, I think that's why we're using very direct language here. In order to understand the background behind these halachas and what led to Rabbi Yosef Karo's ruling, one really needs to go back to the Gemara. There are six key Talmudic texts that are the basis for modern-day halachic Judaism's approach on intimacy in the bedroom. They are Nadarim, Chafa, Medalf, and Amad Beis, Chagiga, Heya, Amad Beis, Sanhedrin, and Ches, Amad Beis, and then Kala and Kalarabti, which are two kind of pseudo-Talmudic texts. If you one looks at Nidarim, which is really the, the most important text, it starts there quoting a certain sage who uh, was known to be a very pious, almost ascetic person, Rabbi Yochanan ben Dahavai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Dahavai states that he had heard in the name of certain ministering angels, Malachi Ashares, that there's certain congenital conditions in children that are caused by sexual behaviors in the bedroom. I'm going to bring this up because it's an important thing. It's a very sensitive topic, and I, but it's, something, it's important to dispel certain misconceptions that are out there, um, especially because when I was taught these laws, I was not taught this whole teaching very clearly. So he basically says that what he was taught by these angels is, why are there children who are lame, who are unable to walk? He says it's because during intimacy, the father overturned the mother. Uh, which basically means they engaged in a sexual position which was not the typical husband-on-top, face-to-face position. Then the question is, why are there children who are blind? It says because during intimacy the father stared or gazed at the mother's genitals. It says, why why are there children who are mute? It says because the father during intimacy kissed the, the mother's genitals. And then it says, why are there children who are deaf? And it says, because during intimacy, the father spoke to the wife. Okay. The Gemara then goes on to say, ask a question, and it says, how could it be that speaking during intimacy is a bad thing? It brings a story from Rabbi Elezer and his wife, Ima Shalom, who was you know, one of the major Tanayim, which basically demonstrates that he and she perhaps 
spoke during intimacy. So how can it be that speaking is a problem? So the Gemara answers that according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Dahavai and these Malachi Asharis, speaking is okay if it's in Inyane Tashmish. If it relates to the act of intimacy, then it's okay. But if it regards other extraneous topics, that's the problem. But then the Gemara goes on and says, it quotes Rabbi Yochanan bar Napcha, who was one of the major first Amar of the Amarayim, and in the transitional period, he was a Talmud of Mira Nasi and uh, a friend, a Chavar of Rav. And he basically says that this is the opinion of Rabbi Yochanan and the Havai, but the Chachamim rule that the Halacha does not follow Rabbi Yochanan and the Havai, rather, anything that a husband and wife want to do with each other, they can do. The actual literal wording there is whatever a man wants to do with his wife he can do. But as I point out in the book, modern day sensibilities might take a, a knee-jerk reaction and take this as a sexist comment. But you know, in general, halacha, when it talks about matters of sexuality, often speaks only in terms of the husband. And usually the context of it is what's the husband's obligation to fulfill the wife. So if we could just look at it in that context, Obviously, of all the commentaries I've ever seen, no one has ever said that a husband's allowed to force his wife to do something against her will. It's either Gemara says it clearly later on the same page. So we can put that aside for the moment, just focus on this specific topic. We shouldn't lose sight of what the Gemara is really saying over here and turn it into something that it's not saying based on a sensibility which isn't really relevant to this case. Exactly. Now, here's a key point. Okay, so what you have here is that the Gemara starts off by saying, Rabbi Yochanan and the Havai and the ministering angels, the Shalach Yasharis, they warned about these things resulting from these behaviors. And then you have the Chachamim and Rabbi Yochanan and Barnabcha coming and saying, the Halach is not this way. The question, though, here is, okay, the first opinion is speaking about almost like science. Like, this is like what, how they're viewing medical science. Maybe it's based on their impression of a punishment. Maybe it's just based on their impression of how, you know, a physical reaction, you know, a physical result. It's not very clear. But the Chachamim is speaking about Halacha. So the Gemara then goes on to a very interesting statement by a Maymar, who was a late Amira, which is very important for people to understand. A Maymar says, who were these Malachi Asharis? When Rabbi Yochanan the Havai quoted these angels, who were they? Were they actual angels? So he says, if they were actual angels, the actual angels have the secrets of creation revealed to them, and they understand the science of fetal development. So if these were actual angels, why wouldn't the Chachamim Paskind like them? If an angel comes and tells you that something is physically dangerous, you're going to assume that it's true, and you're going to say it's usur, it's forbidden, because you're not allowed to do something that's dangerous. So Mamer says, the fact that the Chachamim did not paskin like the, the Malachi Asharis proves that they, they did not believe that these things were dangerous. So who were these Malachi Asharis then? It says they were Rabbanim. Mamer says they were human rabbis. So now you have what's interesting. You have the Chachamim versus the Rabbanim, according to Mamer. Now, what the distinction is between Chachamim and Rabbanan is something that remains to be explored. But basically, what Amemar is saying is that the Chachamim, because they believed that these ministering angels were human rabbis, they believed these rabbis to be fallible, and they did not accept their medical cautions to be valid. And therefore, they paskin the halacha that everything is okay, because they believed that these things were perfectly safe. This is an important distinction, because you have sometimes... Even people who will teach you the second part of the Gemara, that the Chachamim said it's permissible, some people will still say, but they're still dangerous. According to the Gemara, it's very clear, according to Maymar, these all these behaviors are permissible and perfectly safe. In other words, a lot of people might assume that both aspects are true. It might be technically mutter, however, it's still dangerous, but a Maymar clearly says that's not the case. Exactly. It's clear from a Maymar that that's how a Maymar understood it. What you then have is, 
It should also be noted, if you don't mind my saying, Rabbi Shapiro, that as a later Amora, Amemar actually has, in the context of the Amoraim, a greater degree of authority than earlier Amoraim. Correct, because when it comes to Gemara, there's the concept of halacha kebasrai, that halacha follows the later opinion. Some people apply that even post-Gemara, but it's that's debatable, you know, because post-Gemara, there really never is a basrai. Every generation is a new basrai, but within the Gemara itself... Within the Amoraim, exactly. Right. Now, there is a, as I mentioned, there's Mesechta Kala and Kala Rabti kind of bring this discussion as well. Mesechta Kala doesn't discuss about the, really the safety of it in terms of the Chachamim. It just brings the opinion of Rabbi Yochem and Dahavai that these things are dangerous, and it brings the opinion of Chachamim that it's mutter. Kalarabti gets a little bit deeper, and Kalarabti has a different approach. Kalarabti says, in the name of Rava, it says that Rabbi Yochanan and Dahavai himself was not warning about these congenital illnesses unless the actions were performed on the same night as, of conception or within the same act of conception. Meaning that according to Kalarabti, even Rabbi Yochanan and Dahavai himself does not believe that these actions will always cause these problems. It's only if they're performed on the same encounter as conception. In other words, it's almost a scientific reality. It's a consequence of having sexual intercourse in a certain way and the baby being conceived as a result of that intercourse, as opposed to a punishment that will happen later if someone has engaged in that earlier. That's what it implies. And I address this in the end notes, this specific issue. Part of the problem, though, to say that that Kalarapti held it was specifically a scientific thing is that Rava, who's the one who says this uh, explanation, later on gives a reward and punishment explanation for like why do each of these behaviors result in each of these illnesses and he gives like a mita connected mita explanation so it's not a hundred percent clear but whatever the case may be rava says clearly that it only affects the child if it's the same encounter as conception so in a sense he's limiting rabbi yochem and the havai and the ministering angels warning but when it discusses the chachamim's opinion kalarabti says that the chachamim the chachamim say that these things are mutter and it actually says, the Chum say that there's no Isser to forbid them. It's a very strong language. But according to Kalarabti, the Chachamim did admit to Rabbi Yochanan and Dahavai that if these actions are performed during the same encounter as conception, that they could still affect the child. But nevertheless, the Chachamim permitted it. So this is unlike a Memar, in other words. So this is unlike a Memar. According to a Memar, the Chachamim said these things are, are safe and permissible. According to Kalarabti, the Chachamim said that they're safe, if it's not during conception and permissible, but if it's the same encounter as conception, it's permissible but not safe. So these are two important approaches to understand when you study the later halachic guides about these things. You need to be clear because some of them just say it as a blanket, as an obvious thing, you know, that these things are still dangerous. But that's not how the Gemara paskins, and arguably the Gemara takes precedence over Kalarabsi. And then the Gemara concludes there basically bringing two case precedents. In Kalarabsi or somewhere else? I'm sorry, going back now to Nadar oh, okay. and Mebez, the Gemara there ends off bringing two case precedents that show that Rabiud Nasi, who was the head of the Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael in his time, and Rav, who was the head of the Chachamim in Bavil a generation later, were both had cases where a, a woman came to them complaining that their husband had, was called Hafiha Shulchan, had overturned them for a different position, not the normal position of husband on, on top, face to face. And in both cases... The, the rabbi advised them that it was okay halachically. Again, it's not clear what the, the women were coming to ask about, whether they were actually complaining or whether they were coming to ask whether it's permissible. These are things that the commentaries discuss, and in the book we discuss it without getting into that deeply. The point is that the Gemara kind of shows that these two chachamim paskened like the chachamim in this case. Now, here's what people need to understand. 
at the end of the Gemara, based on the Chachamim, it's basically saying that all four things that Rabbi Yochanan ben Dahavai had cautioned against are permissible and according to a Memar safe. We're talking now about various sexual positions, which is called over Shulchan, gazing or staring at the, at the female's genitals. It doesn't discuss the wife gazing at her husband's genitals, but the assumption is that it, either they're the same or that the gazing at the husband's might be less objectionable. I'm not going to get into the details of that. But in any case, the husband gazing at the wife's, permissible. The husband kissing the wife's genitals, permissible. And talking during intercourse, whether or not it relates to the sexual act, would be permissible. So now the question is even stronger. If that's what the Gemara Paskins, how do you have Rabbi Yosef Karo Paskining that he doesn't discuss, you know, all the different positions there could be, but the two positions he does discuss, he doesn't say they're forbidden, but he basically deplores them. And he says that gazing is forbidden. He says that kissing is forbidden down there. And talking, he also discusses there that it should be restricted. So here's where it comes the, the approach of the Ravid. Okay, And the Ravid is basically the only medieval authority that says a completely new interpretation of this Gemara. And there's one other Rishon who supports the Ravid unequivocally. I believe that's the Oham Mohid. And basically the Ravid's interpretation of this Gemara is that when the Chachamim said, Kol Masha Adam Anything the husband and wife want to do together, they can do. They weren't coming to reject all four of Rabbi Yochem and Dahavai's cautions. They were only coming to reject one, which is Hafiq HaShulchan. According to the Ravid in Bali and Nefesh, Kedusha, the Chachamim were saying you can do Hafiq HaShulchan, but everything else the Chachamim still forbade for other reasons. The gazing, he says, is forbidden because it's a lack of shame. The kissing, he says, is forbidden because of Altashaksu. And the speaking, he says, is also forbidden because of a, a Gemara and Chagiga Hamim Beis. We don't have to get into the details here. So the Ravid, in other words, is interpreting that word kolma, the word everything he wants to do, in a very narrow way, referring to a very specific one of the four, just the first. Exactly. And he's basically alone in that interpretation that in, in the books of Rishonim that we have, besides, like I said, the Oyal Mayid. But the Tor brings the Ravid in his discussion of these laws. If I should just say, the Rambam is the one who basically states most eloquently the the approach of the Chachamim in Parish Mishnayis, Sanhedrin, chapter 7, things Mishnah Dalad. The Rambam has a whole kind of like a compendium of uh, marital sexual law, and he basically says clearly that we paskin like the Chachamim in regard to all these things. The Rambam in Sefer Kedusha Surabia, Parish Chaf Aleph, Halachates, also basically paskins clearly like the Chachamim. And what you find is that most Rishonim who discuss these laws more or less quote the Rambam, verbatim, almost. So you have all these Rishonim against the Ravid, but then when the Tor, when Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher wrote the Tor, he quoted the Rambam and the Ravid. And the Paiskim debate in terms of who did he paskin like. I'm not going to get into the details of how they debate it, but at the end of the day, it's unclear how the Tor paskins. But then when you have Rabbi Yosef Karo comes and he paskins only like the Ravid, doesn't even share with the readers the other opinions. For that, you need to look at the Beis Yosef. Which, as you said, was his original intention in all likelihood. Which wasn't his original intention in all likelihood. But at the end of the day, he seems to possum like the Ravid in regard to gazing, in regard to kissing, and in regard to talking. In regard to the various positions, he obviously denigrates the wife on top and side by side. He does not address rear entry vaginal intercourse, which is somewhat surprising. And he doesn't address uh, Shalika Darka, which is anal intercourse, which is probably one of the most prevalent discussed topics in halachic literature. 
I actually mentioned it in the book so for readers to be aware that the book itself uh, has an inordinate amount of discussion about the question of anal intercourse because in the rabbinic texts themselves, there's an inordinate dis- amount of discussion about it compared to the other issues. So the fact that Rabbi Yosef Karu leaves it out of Shulchan Aruch completely is very surprising. In the Gemara Nidarim, the question is, what does the term Hafichah Shulchan mean? What does overturning the table mean? You know, there's certain terms that you find in rabbinic literature or all over the place in these discussions. For instance, rear vaginal intercourse is called Panim Keneged Oirif, face to back. Or it's called Maisa Behema, which literally means the act of an animal. In the book, I call it animal style, <laughs> because for obvious reasons. But the, the rabbinic term, in a sense, is really animal style. When you talk about anal intercourse, it's called Shalai Kadarka, which is usually translated as unnatural intercourse. And uh, in the book, it discusses how in certain texts, especially in modern-day texts, they confuse the term Shalai Kadarka and some of the more modern-day guides try to present the term Shalakadarka as referring to rear vaginal intercourse, uh, when that is clearly not the case. But the question is, Hafiha Shulchan is a term that is not found, really, in many places. So the question is, what does it mean? So among the Rishayim, there's basically four different approaches. Some say it refers to rear-entry vaginal intercourse. Some say it refers to the wife on top. The vast majority of Rishayim say it refers to anal intercourse. And one of the Rishayim says that it refers to the wife on top, facing away from the husband. But the important point to take from this is that most Rishonim say it refers to Shalai Kadarka. Thank you for joining us for part two of our series on Jewish law and sexuality. Join me and Rabbi Shapiro next week for part three, here on the Orthodox Conundrum. Yaakov Shapiro's book, Halachic Positions, What Judaism Really Says About Passion in the Marital Bed, may be ordered on Amazon. You're listening to JewishCoffeeHouse.com.